Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, June 3rd, 2021. And I am so glad to be back with you. I missed you all last week. It was great to go. It's also great to come home. And it is wonderful to be together with you tonight. And I thank you for giving this time so that we can be together and to study together. This week's Parsha is the Parsha of Shlach where Moshe sends 12 spies into the land of Israel to bring back a report. Forty days later, the spies return, and they bring back a very negative and frightening report about what the Jews will encounter when they go into Israel, and the Jewish people in the desert become afraid and become hysterical. There were two of the spies Kalev and Yehoshua, Joshua, who insisted that the land was good and that God would fulfill his promise to allow them to successfully conquer the land of Israel. But the people were hysterical. God became very, very angry with a terrible punishment to follow. And the question is, what did the spies do wrong? How did it go off the rails? After all, they reported what they saw. How did it turn into such a disaster? Rabbi Moshe Yosef Leiner was a Hasidic Rebbe in Ishpitza in the early 1800s, and he wrote an important work called Mei Shiloach. He's known to us as the Ishpitzer. And he has an approach to this question in our Parsha that I'd like to share with you. But Bailey Newman helps to explain what the Ishpitzer says, starting from a very, very different source, Vincent van Gogh. In 1879, Vincent van Gogh was a young man and he got a job as a preacher in a remote, poor village in the southern part of Belgium. He didn't do a very good job because after a few months, the church fired him. And he was disappointed he didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life. And he moved to another small village and he began there to draw and to write. He had a brother, a younger brother, Theo, that he was very, very close with throughout his life. And his brother Theo came to visit him. The real reason Theo came to visit was to report back to their family to spy on him, so to speak. But his family were disappointed. Vincent didn't have a sense of direction in life. He didn't have a purpose in life. He wasn't really doing anything important. And so Theo came to visit to report back to his family how and what Vincent was doing. After that visit, Vincent van Gogh wrote a letter 
to his brother Theo. And he described himself as overcome by a feeling of sorrow and thrust in a struggle against despair because he realized that his family saw him as useful for neither one thing nor another. And they were profoundly disappointed in his lack of purpose and focus in life. Now, of course, we today know what Van Gogh went on to create, some of the most magnificent art in modern history. But at that moment, feeling misunderstood and unseen, Van Gogh writes the following parable. In the springtime, a bird in a cage knows very well that there is something he'd be good for. He feels very clearly that there's something to be done, but he can't do it. What it is, he can't clearly remember. And he bangs his head against the bars of his cage. But the cage stays and the bird is mad with suffering. Nothing of what's going on within shows outside. But, say the children who look after him, he's got everything that he needs in his cage after all. But he looks at the sky outside and within himself feels a rebellion against fate. That's the parable. And then he applies this parable, this metaphor to himself writing in the third person. Someone, referring to himself, someone has a great fire in his soul and nobody ever comes to warm themselves at it. And passers-by see nothing but a little smoke at the top of the chimney and then they go on their way. Now the truth is, this is a universal struggle. All of us feel it, some more than others. All of us are shouting into the world, warm yourself at my fireplace. See what I really am. See the nuances of my being. Don't think that the little smoke that you see tells my whole tale. My essence is ablaze within this cage. That's what we all say. See me in my totality. Because the truth is, we are all so scared of dying without ever really being seen. And that was what Van Gogh wanted. He just wanted his brother to see him for who he really was. Someone who had within him a vision, a passion, a greatness that he could not yet express. 
but his brother Theo didn't see it. He only saw a foolish brother dabbling in a hobby and wasting his life. We are often like Van Gogh. We are, to a greater or lesser extent, birds in the cage who people think they understand, but we know inside they don't really understand us. They don't see what is inside of us. And if we are honest, we very often do the same thing to others. We are all at risk of seeing the smoke coming out of another's chimney, but forgetting that there is a fire burning within. There is nothing as enlivening or as holy as being completely seen. And conversely, there is nothing as draining or as painful as feeling misunderstood and misread and unseen. And that is a perfect metaphor for what is happening in our Parsha. God wants us to see Israel complexly. Israel is hard. Israel is challenging. In order to appreciate, sometimes we have to recognize that its outer appearance can be harsh. But God wants us to see more than just the smoke coming out of the chimney. God wants us to know that there is a fire burning in the fireplace of the land of Israel. There is a sweetness and a holiness and a passionate closeness to God. But you have to search for it. You have to look harder and deeper than just the surface. God wants us to contemplate, to unpack, to question, to admit we don't know the first thing about Israel. God wants us to look with wide eyes that reject superficiality. God wants us to give close attention. Henry Miller once wrote, the moment one gives close attention to anything, even a blade of grass, it becomes mysterious, awesome, an indescribably magnificent world in itself. That's the way God wants us to approach Israel. The Ishpatzer explains, that's what God was saying to the spies. That's why God was so upset. Because he was saying to them, don't look at the garments of the land. See what is beneath them. The Ishpatzer, in explaining this passage, 
does not see the sin of the spies as a lack of faith or gratitude or an expression of negativity as other commentators explain it. He says the source of their sin was short-sighted superficiality. They didn't look into themselves or up to the heavens or into their neighbors' hearts or into their tradition. They didn't understand their mission going into the land. And that's why it ended in disaster. And here is the applicable point. Very often, we do the same thing. Just as the spies did not look inside themselves for a deeper understanding of the land they were seeing, just like children think the bird is content in its cage, often so too we wander through this world like tourists, comfortable with a superficial vision. When we walk through this world, we ought to look on God or ourselves or others, not as tourists might look with just a cursory glance. We're not meant to sightsee. We are meant to wade deep in insight. We're meant to complicate, to seek the flames of understanding and not follow the smoke of oversimplicity. And that applies about our mission in life. It applies to our goals, our striving for goodness and holiness and closeness to God. We are meant to feel seen by God, by those who love us and by ourselves. We're meant to never doubt that there is a fire in our fireplace, not just a puff of smoke from the chimney. And we are meant to learn from and thereby avoid the sin of the spies who saw only the surface and missed the fire within. The consequence of that sin, though, is still hard to understand because God displays in our Parsha a level of exasperation and outrage that seems out of proportion to the mistake that the Jewish people made. Consider this. The two greatest debacles of the Jewish people during the 40 years in the desert. One, our Parsha, the sin of the spies. The other happened about 10 months earlier, the sin of the Egel, the golden calf. Both of these sins are terrible. But to my mind, the Egel, the golden calf, is much worse 
Imagine just days after the entire Jewish people standing at Mount Sinai heard directly from God and God spoke the words of the Ten Commandments, the Aseret Sidibros, including these words, Lo Don't make an image to worship. It can't be more clear than that. And yet 40 days later, they had built a golden calf, an ego. It's terrible. It's very, very serious. And yet somehow, after that mistake, Moshe is able to eventually get God to forgive the Jewish people. And the outcome of the entire event is Yom Kippur, our annual day of forgiveness and atonement. But the Miraglin, the spies? Okay. According to the Ishbitzer, they had too superficial a view of what they saw in the land of Israel. Or, according to others, a lack of gratitude or a lack of faith. They only saw the negative. Okay, it's terrible. But they were afraid. And they didn't actually disobey anything, they were afraid. And for that, God becomes so furious with them. There is no forgiveness in our Parsha. Even after Moshe intercedes, and by the way, Moshe's prayer, asking God to forgive the people, in our Parsha, is almost verbatim the same prayer that was successful in achieving forgiveness after the golden calf. But here, Moshe fails. The entire generation would die in the desert. No forgiveness. No second chance. Only their children the next generation would enter Israel. Why is God's reaction here so strict and so unyielding? So I've shared before a couple of answers to this difficult problem. And here's another approach. There was a young couple, a young married couple, that went to visit Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky at that time lived in Muncie, New York. He was one of the greatest Torah leaders of the previous generation. And this young couple went to visit and to speak with him. And this young couple had a very young baby boy that was with them. While they were talking, sitting around the table, the little boy climbed up onto the table and knocked over some water glasses on the table. And the parents were mortified. Their child had misbehaved in the presence of one of the greatest scholars of Israel. They were about to get so angry at their child. They were embarrassed. How could their child do such a thing in such a place? So Yaakov gave them the following advice, and this is great advice for all parents. 
Rav Yaakov said to them, whenever you are considering disciplining a child and you're not sure if this is something that should be a big deal or maybe not such a big deal, ask yourself the following question. Am I worried that he or she will do that at their wedding? In other words, an action that is normal for a young child that they will probably outgrow is not as serious as an action that might set a pattern that is continued and repeated into adulthood. The sin of the golden calf was terrible. And there were other episodes in Jewish history when Jews were drawn to idols and images. But it is not a pervasive, ongoing problem. Have you ever felt the desire, the urge to bow down and worship a cow? It's not a problem that we have. It's not something, to borrow the metaphor, that we would have done at our wedding. It was a mistake, a serious mistake, but it was a mistake at the beginning of our relationship with God. It needed correction, but it was not an ongoing flaw that God needed to be so strict about. We outgrew it and God forgave us. The sin of the spies is very different. It is so serious and was treated so seriously by God because we all continue to do it even now. We cause hysteria and anxiety and fear in our lives and in the lives of others because we choose to focus on the negative rather than the positive. God cannot allow us to constantly make that mistake. It's a big deal. And God's response reflects that it is a mistake we have carried into adulthood. God doesn't want us to ignore the negatives. Remember, God commanded sending the spies into Israel to learn how to navigate entering and conquering Israel, but to focus only on the negative, to bring back a report that twists everything in a negative light, caused and causes us hysteria and destruction. So this Shabbos, we have something that is truly remarkable. We've discussed in the past the role of the Haftorah. On Shabbos, we read the Torah in synagogue. And after we read the weekly Torah portion, we read the Haftorah. The Haftorah is a passage from one of the books of the Prophets. We read it every Shabbos after 
the Torah portion. And somehow it is connected to the Torah portion. Sometimes the thematic connection is obvious. Sometimes it's less obvious. But I can't think of a single time like this week's Parsha where we have two different texts about the same event from drastically different points of view. Such that our Haftorah, which is from the book of Yehoshua, the book of Joshua, adds something profound to our Parsha, to the Torah Parsha, that we would not otherwise have understood. It's incredible. So in our Parsha, the Torah Parsha of Shlach, the spies go to Israel, they come back, and here's what they say. They come back and they say, We are coming back from the land that you sent us to. And yes, it is true, it is flowing with milk and honey, and these are its fruits. They have brought back examples of the fruits of the land of Israel. But the people there, they're too strong for us. We'll never be able to conquer it. And the cities are very well fortified. We will not be able to conquer them. The people we saw there, they're giants. Now that was 10 of the 12 spies. Vayahas Kalev Esaam El Moshe. Kalev and Yehoshua intervened and they said, no, God has promised us this land. We will be able to conquer it. Don't listen to these 10 spies that are trying to frighten you. But the other 10 said, Lo los el ki mimenu. We will not succeed because the people there are too strong for us. The land that we just came from, that you told us to spy out and bring you a report. It is a land that eats up its inhabitants. And the people there are frighteningly gigantic. Such that we seemed in our eyes like grasshoppers. Vatisa kol ha'eda vayitnu es kolam vayivku ha'om balaylahu. And the entire nation of Israel raised their voices, wailing and cried throughout that night. And they complained against Moshe and Aaron. And they said, why did you take us out of Egypt just to die here in the desert? We can't possibly go into Israel. We'll never succeed there. Why did you take us out of Egypt? We'd be better off staying in Egypt. But here's the question. Was it true? 
was the report that the 10 spies gave actually what the inhabitants were thinking? Well, there's no way to know because the Torah is written by God but written from the perspective of the Jewish people. We don't know what the people already living in Israel, at that time known as Canaan, we don't know what they were thinking. We don't know what they thought of these spies who maybe they saw, maybe they didn't see. But wouldn't it be fascinating to know if we had some source inside Canaan that could tell us definitively what the people of Canaan were actually thinking at that time? We do. That is the subject of the Haftorah from the book of Yoshua, Joshua. The Haftorah tells a larger narrative, but it tells us about a perspective on the events in our Parsha that is very different from the perspective the spies give us. And it is just incredible to have two different sources, one from the Torah, one from the prophets, talking about the same incident from completely different points of view. Here's the Haftorah. At the end of the 40 years in the desert, just after Moshe died, Yehoshua is now the successor, the leader of the Jewish people, and Yehoshua finally is about to lead the Jewish people into the land of Israel. By Yishlach Yehoshua bin Nun Meraglim, Yehoshua sends spies into the land first. And he says to them, Go and spy out the land. Isn't it incredible that almost 40 years later, Yehoshua does again what ended up in such a disaster almost 40 years earlier? And Yehoshua, remember, was part of that story. Because while the 10 spies gave the negative report, Yehoshua was the one, along with Kalev, who insisted, no, we will be able to conquer it. And now they're on the cusp. They're on the edge. And Yoshua sends two spies to spy out the land. The spies go into the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, and they go to a home of a woman whose name is Rachav. This woman, Rachav, hides them and protects them in exchange for their promise that when the Jewish people do come into the land of Israel, that she and her family will be saved. And then she explains why she is willing to do this. And she says to these two men, these two spies, I know that God is going to give you, the Jewish people, this land of Israel. And 
v'chinamogu kol yoshvei ha'aretz mibnechem. I know that everyone here will melt in fear before you. How did she know that? We heard the story about your God and the miracles taking you out of Egypt, splitting the Red Sea, fighting your battles for you. We heard about all this. We heard these stories and our hearts just melted. There is not a single man here with the spirit to even fight against you. Because you're God, that's the real God. He's the God of heaven and earth, and we have no chance against you. The spies return and give their report to Yehoshua. Again, remember what this report must have meant to Yehoshua specifically, because 38 years earlier, Yehoshua had been one of the two that had disagreed with the other 10 spies and said, yes, of course we can take this land. And now he hears the report. Yes, of course, all this time we could have taken the land. But Yahushua was ignored. So the two spies come back to the Jewish people. The two spies come back. They come in front of Yahushua, the leader. And they tell the entire report to Yahushua. And they say to Yahushua, God will place the entire land in our hands. All of the inhabitants of Canaan are frightened to death of our approach. Imagine how different our Parsha would be. And imagine how different the rest of the Torah would be if the spies in our Parsha had that piece of intelligence had brought back that report. And I want to suggest to you that this holds for us three very important lessons. The first lesson is that people should have trusted God. Regardless of what the spies said, God had promised he would lead us to the land of Israel. He would give us the land of Israel. And when God promises something, God lives up to his promises. They should have believed. Doesn't matter what the spies said. That's number one. The second lesson, which is so relevant and applicable to our lives, especially now. The second lesson is, don't worry about problems that have not yet arisen. Because often, it will turn out not to ever arise. Okay, yes, once in a while a problem pops up where you would never expect it, but that's rare. 
Much more common is the truth of the quote by Michel de Montaigne, who wrote 500 years ago, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. And in 2017, we got proof, scientific proof. A group of scientists did a study where they had subjects in this study write down their worries over an extended period of time. And then afterwards, to identify which of their imagined misfortune did not actually happen. And lo and behold, it turns out that 85% of what people were worried about happening to them never happened. Our Haftorah shows us that our Parsha is a perfect example of that. And we need to strive to remind ourselves every time we anticipate something bad happening, doesn't pay to worry about it before it happens because there's an 85% chance it will never happen. One final lesson. And this is a lesson that is contained within a great story told by Rabbi Shlomo Karbach. And the story, the title of the story is Schwarze Wolf. Now, Schwarze Wolf is Yiddish. It means black wolf. So before I go any further, I just want to explain something. The word Schwarz, in English we would pronounce it Schwartz is the Yiddish word black. That word, unfortunately, has been used by some people in a derogatory manner about certain people concerning their skin color. And that is a terrible thing to say, and it is a terrible word to use. A person should never use that term referring to other human beings who are children of God, just like you and me. But, the word just means the color black. And here in this story, I'm just using this term Schwarze Wolf to mean black wolf. And the story goes like this. There was once a man who lived in a town called Chentidkov. And this man and his wife were very sad because they could not have a child. They wanted to have children. They tried to have children. They did everything in their power to have a child. They prayed to God. They engaged in Torah learning. They gave money to tzedakah. 18 years of marriage passed and God had not decided to bless them with a child. So they decided to go see their Rebbe, the Kajnitzer Magid, who was the greatest Hasidic Rebbe at that time. 
The man went to the Rebbe. The Rebbe listened very carefully. And then he put down his head for a long time. And finally, he lifted his head and he said, the gates in heaven to have a baby are closed for you and your wife. They will not open. I cannot open them for you either. The man heard these words and his heart sank. There was no hope. Because if the Rebbe, the greatest, couldn't help him, who could? But then the Kajnitzer Magid continued and he said, even though I can't open the gates of heaven for you to have a child, there is someone who can. There is only one person in the world who could possibly open the gates of heaven for you, that God would change his mind and allow you and your wife to have a child. And his name is Schwarze Wolf. Now the man knew who Schwarze Wolf was. Schwarze Wolf was a mean man. He lived in the forest. No one liked him because he was always screaming at people. He looked like a monster. He was scary and frightening and mean. First, the man thought maybe the Rebbe is talking about another Schwarze Wolf, but, but the Rebbe said, Schwarze Wolf that lives in the forest. And the Rebbe says, I'm telling you, he is one of the greatest hidden tzaddikim, righteous people in the entire world, and he is the only person that can help you. So the man came back to his town, and he started asking people if they had any idea, any experiences with this person, Schwarzwolf. He found a few people who had tried to visit this person, but they all became scared because they heard screaming in the house before they even approached and they just ran away. So now this man had a real problem because there's only one person in the world that can help him with this terribly difficult problem. And he is a person that is so mean and so angry and so horrible, there's not even a way to approach him. But finally, he had an idea. His plan was as follows. On a Friday afternoon, he was going to go take a walk in the forest. He was going to pretend that he was lost. And he would just happen to come to the house of Schwarze Wolf just before Shabbos. And he would knock on the door. This is his plan. He would knock on the door. He would say, I'm a traveler. I'm lost in the forest. Shabbos is about to start. I need a place to stay for Shabbos. Nobody can refuse another Jew who's desperate to find a place to stay for Shabbos. He's got to let me in. That was the plan. So the next Friday afternoon, the man sets off. He had to leave his wife. He had to be away for the weekend. He's walking in the forest late Friday afternoon. And he sees 
Schwarzevold's house. It is an ugly, broken down, falling apart monstrosity of a house. And the man hears from a distance, he hears screaming and yelling coming from inside the house. And it sounded like a woman. It sounded like Schwarzewolf's wife was inside, screaming and yelling horribly. But he's got to go to the house. So he knocks on the door and he heard the wife shouting from inside, who's there? Who came to our house? Go away. We don't want anybody here. You know, this is Schwarzerwolf's house. If Schwarzerwolf finds out that you came here, he's going to tear you into little pieces. Go away. Now, the truth is the man was actually a little bit lucky that it was the wife who answered, because if it had been Schwarzerwolf, he would have just torn him to pieces immediately without t telling him anything. But the man was persistent. He said to this woman, listen, I'm a Jewish person. I'm traveling. I'm lost. Please help me. I need a place to stay for Shabbos. This woman was so mean and so scary. And she said, go away. If my husband finds you here, he's going to kill you anyway. Go away. But he says, he pleads with her. I just need a place for Shabbos. So she says, okay, okay. Go to the barn, stay in the barn. Don't come out of the barn because if you come out of the barn, my husband will kill you. So go into the barn, stay there. Don't move, don't come out. I wish you wouldn't have come anyway. All right. He goes into the barn. He sits down. He's waiting for something to happen. And obviously he's very, very scared. After a while, he heard noises coming from the house. He heard two people yelling at each other. Schwarzewolf and his wife are now yelling and screaming at each other. And she says to him, Schwarzewolf, I'm going to tell you something that I was not going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you. What are you going to tell me that you were not going to tell me? Well, somebody came to our house. What? Somebody came to our house? Who came to our house? Yeah, it was some man. He said he was lost. He needed a place to spend Shabbos. A man wants to spend Shabbos here with us? Oh, he's lucky he ran away. Because if I got my hands on him, I'd tear him to pieces. Of course, you, you pushed him away, right? Well, uh, kind of, she says. I, but he's in the barn. But he's not going to come out. But he's in the barn for Shabbos. What? You let a person spend Shabbos here with us, even if it's in the barn? I don't want anybody to be in my barn. I'm going to get him and to tear him to pieces. Now, when the man in the barn heard that, he got really scared. Because what was Schwarzewolf going to actually do to him? He was going to tear him to pieces. But at the same time, this man had kind of a strange feeling because his Rebbe, who he trusted with his life, had told him that somehow 
this man is the greatest hidden righteous person in the whole world. It, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Schwarzevold came into the barn. He walks over to this man and he says, you're going to spend Shabbos in this stable. If I see your nose coming out of the door of the barn, I'm going to rip you to pieces. Stay here. Don't move. I don't want to see you. And after Shabbos, get lost. Okay. The man sits down in the barn and he thinks to himself, you know, this is very strange because my Rebbe sent me here. He did not make a mistake. It just doesn't make sense that everything I see here is so ugly and it's so scary. If God actually wants to give me a blessing, why couldn't he give it to me in a different way? Then the following idea came to him. He said, a tzaddik, a righteous person, is a person who is not living for themselves. A tzaddik lives for others, to give blessings, to pray for others, to teach others, to inspire others. That's what a tzaddik is. Then he thought to himself, you know, a mirror is just the same. A mirror is not for itself. If a mirror would be for itself, there would be no point to it. A mirror reflects someone else. And he thought that about that a little longer, and then he thought, well, maybe a tzaddik is like a mirror. Maybe the righteous person reflects the other who's coming to them, not physically, but spiritually. So if I am looking at this person, Schwarze Wolf, and what I see is horrible and ugly and frightening, maybe it's not Schwarze Wolf. Maybe I'm seeing a reflection of myself somehow enlarged or magnified. And so this man in the barn started to do teshuva. He started to introspect, to think of ways, small ways, in which the faults that he saw in the other could actually be found within himself. And he thought about this very deeply. And just then, the door of the barn opened and in walked Schwarzewolf. He had the biggest smile on his face. He was happy and nice and handsome. He didn't look like Schwarzewolf from just a little while ago. And Schwarzewolf said to him, please come with me into our home. Be with my family. Spend Shabbos with us. Don't spend Shabbos alone 
by yourself outside. Come into our home. And the man gets up and he walks with Schwarze Wolf back to his house. And the house looks different. It's beautiful. It's strong. It's inviting. And Schwarze Wolf's family, his wife, she's nice. She's helpful. She's accommodating. And everything is set up for Shabbos. It's so beautiful. It's so enjoyable. And the man realized that his introspection into himself had helped. And then Schwarzwolf said to him, I know why you came. You came to get a blessing for children. The gates of heaven for you to have a baby are open for you now. However, I want to ask from you one favor. When your baby is born, I want you to name him after me, Schwarze Wolf. After Shabbos, the man went home. A short while later, he heard that Schwarze Wolf had died. And about a year later, this man and his wife gave birth to a baby son, which they named after the greatest hidden tzaddik in the world, Schwarze Wolf. So here's the lesson. And the message that we are to learn from the spies. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes you see what you are. And if you don't like what you see, start by working on yourself. My friends, I want to wish you a great night and a wonderful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.